Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. Take your Bibles, please. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15 this morning. How do you envision the life of discipleship should look? <clears throat> if you were to map out in your own minds what a life looks like following Jesus, what does that look like to you? And I want to ask the question in a couple different ways. Number one, where did you get that map of what it should look like? Because oftentimes I think that map has often been culturally conditioned and created for us rather than biblically made. Okay, does that make sense what I'm saying right now? Like, you don't have to agree with me. I just want you to catch the, the sense. But I also feel like when you create that map of discipleship and what it looks like to follow Jesus... And then you analyze your own life. How many of you are going to honestly say, my life matches up to the map? And then when you realize that it doesn't match up to the map, what do you do? What do you do? I want to look at a passage this morning in Matthew chapter 15. <clears throat> it's kind of a, we call it a couplet, a double story. It's a story that Nate, uh, a similar story that Nate already covered several weeks ago, is the feeding of the 5,000. Today, Jesus is not as powerful. He only feeds 4,000. Okay, so we have a second story. Obviously, I'm being very sarcastic right there. Okay. Um, what I'm getting at is like we have a similar story that is taking place. And as we look at it, it's neat because uh, Nate got to do the 5,000, I'm doing the 4,000, so we can hit at it from very different angles. Okay, and what I want to do is ask that question as we go through, what is the life of journey? What's a journey of discipleship look like? And come away with some conclusions as we leave this morning. Matthew chapter 15, verse 32, Jesus says this, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, uh, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? Jesus said, well, how many loaves do you have? Seven. They replied, and, and a few small fish. So he told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish. When he had given thanks, he broke them. He gave them to his disciples. And they turned into the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 men, <clears throat> besides women and children, 
And after Jesus sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. Father, help us as we look at the end of Matthew chapter 15 this morning to analyze with hope and with joy the life of discipleship you're calling us into. And we'll give you praise for what you'll do in and through us for the sake of your kingdom, we pray. Amen. So I want to tackle this thing really quick right out of the gate. Are these two stories, feeding of the 4,000, feeding of the 5,000, are they the same story? Did Jesus really do this a second time? Uh, in the 1900s, this was a big critical issue in the life of the church is that people would attack the authority of the Bible by saying, look at this passage. These things are the same things, but they have different stories and different numbers and different amounts of food, and so we can't trust the Bible. Okay, and, and for me, like, whether this is the same account or not, it doesn't necessarily have to do with whether we can trust the Bible. But what I do want to show you is that I believe these are very different stories that Jesus performed on two different occasions. And it's not very weird for Jesus to do the same miracle more than once. He heals people more than once. He heals the dumb more than one. He raises people from the, like he does all kinds of things more than once. So it's not unusual at the same time for Jesus to do this. But I do believe that there are two different stories, two different incidents going on, just by the sheer details. Like, number one, the first way I would say these are different stories is just the number of people. The first story was 5,000. This one is 4,000. The quantities of food are different. In in the story of the 5,000, Jesus took five loaves and two fish and had 12 baskets left over. In this story, he has seven loaves, a few fish, and seven baskets left over. The people also in this incident had been with Jesus for three days. Rather, in the 5,000 feeding, they were with him just one day after he got off the boat and was going on to shore. And the times of the seasons, time of the year for these stories seem to be very different. The feeding of the 5,000, the earlier feeding, is when the grass was green. That Mark chapter 6, verse 39 speaks to the 5,000 story of the grass being green, which would be spring. While here in Matthew chapter 15, the 4,000, there's no mention of grass. And it appears to be hard grounds. And he describes this place, we'll see in a few minutes, as a wilderness, which would make this more late summer. So just real quick, are these stories the same? I don't believe so. I think Jesus does more miracles once, twice, many times. And two times, of all the times Jesus is out talking with people and crowds are following him, he provides food for them. And as he's providing food for them, this is not just a story for the crowds. It's not just a story for the religious leaders. It's a story for the disciples. As Jesus interacts with the disciples about this story, in fact, we don't get any mention of religious leaders in the story. We don't get any mention of anyone outside except the conversation that takes place between Jesus and his disciples. And what is interesting to me is... Verse 33, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, and the disciples say, Jesus, where are we going to get enough bread? I don't know how, you, how that sits with you. Two chapters earlier, he just fed 5,000 people. And now they're coming back to him and saying, 
Yeah, there's a lot of people out there. But where are we going to get food? In some sense, we're like, you stupid disciples. Like, you're ridiculous. Don't, did you remember what happened six minutes ago? And we come into a very similar scenario, and the disciples are doing what? Oh, my goodness. Where are we going to get all this food, Jesus? It's a great idea. It's a great, it's a great, let's feed them all. Perfect. But how are we going to do it? You ever been like that in your life where God has met you time after time after time? You didn't know where money was coming from, and all of a sudden, boom, money comes. And six minutes later, like the, the personal property tax for your car that you own that's like $12,000, and they make you pay $48,000 for taxes on it, and you're like, what am I going to? And we freak out. You forgot the 50 other times Jesus just like, here it is. And disciples are the same way. Disciples are beginning to doubt once again in the goodness of God, in the power of God to meet their needs. Even though God did something amazing two chapters earlier, they have already moved back into doubt. The bent of our hearts is because of indwelling sin is to constantly not trust God. It is the most in a sense, counterintuitive thing that when we get in trouble, when we get stuck, when life gets hard, when circumstances are against us, because of the nature of indwelling sin, it is so prone for us to put our trust in ourselves, to not trust that God is going to meet us. And what I want us to see is that this is the path of discipleship. The path of discipleship is a path of continuing, trusting, and obeying in the midst of untrusting and disobeying. There are days when we're filled with faith. There are days when we can move mountains, it seems, and the very next moment we're like stuck in the sands. The odds are so big. It's like feeding thousands and thousands of people. And we begin like Peter in the water, or like disciples here to take our eyes off of Jesus. And the ironic thing is when we begin to take our eyes off of Jesus, what does that create within us? It creates anxiety. Where am I going to get this money? How is this going to get done? It creates stress. It creates discouragement like, oh, here we are again. And so when we begin to take our eyes off of Jesus, it's not just disobeying, okay, sure, but there's this reality that when you do that, there's like this internal conflict, this internal strife that is constantly going on in our hearts. And this is important to note, that life, when it is filled with abundance, is not just when we have food and money and cars and nice things, but a life of abundance is when we don't experience the anxiety, the shame, the guilt, the despondency that we experience every day. That is the abundant life. And when we begin to take our eyes off of Jesus, even though we know he's met us all the time in the past, it then just begins to breed in us these feelings, these emotions. And we begin to look to other things, look to ourselves, look to how we can figure out the answers. But then here's another ironic piece to the story of discipleship. 
when that moment of light bulb goes off, you're like, holy crap, I've been trusting myself, I've been looking for my own solutions, and then you want to come back to God, but when you want to come back to God, then how do you feel? Guilty that you didn't trust him to begin with. Shame that you didn't like, oh man, I'm a Christian, and I didn't even like begin to pray about this. And you begin to get discouraged, and you're always like, oh, I'm not a good Christian today. I've tried so hard, but I just can't measure up. I don't deserve God's love. Heck, yeah, you don't. That's the whole point. And so this internal strife of discipleship comes in unbelief. But when you try to go back to belief, it's still there. And it's just like this constant plague. I don't know if you're, if you're tracking with me or not, but just this internal constant emotions and feelings that you have to deal with in discipleship. See, many times you do things when you take your eyes off of Jesus and don't trust God, that you do things that, in a sense, we would say this, I can never forgive myself for that. You ever been there? When you can't forgive yourself, who's the ultimate God in your life? You are. That's what it means you can't forgive yourself. This whole, and I'm not going to go into like the nonsense of whether or not it's good or not to forgive yourself. I'm just saying if you can't, the idea is that you are your ultimate God. You failed yourself so deeply that you don't think you deserve anything. And then you can't even move to God. And so you continue to live in these feelings and emotions of guilt and anxiety and shame and fear. But I want you to know the life of discipleship is not to ignore those emotions. It's actually not even to feel bad that you have those feelings. When you open up that bill and you don't, and it's like $1,000 and you don't have $1,000 in your bank and the first thing that you feel in your, in your heart is what? I feel anger. That's me. You might feel nervous. You might feel discouraged. Okay, is it wrong when you open that note to just feel like anger? Not necessarily. Like that's normal. If a lion is running through this room I'm running to that, well, I might try to grab my kids, but I'll probably just run straight back into that door and shut, the, shut it and protect myself, and I'm afraid. Is that normal? That's what it means to be human, is to experience these emotions. The problem is, is that when we take these emotions that we have and we run away from God to our own selves, all of these emotions that we experience in our discipleship are to lead us to God, that we are in need that we need God to come and meet us. And you know how God often comes and meets your needs? It's so annoying through other people. Because then you have to humble yourself and receive from other people. How many of you like it when someone else pays your own bills? You're like, no, that's not, I will, I will pay you back. We have a debtor's ethic. But if you bring me a meal, I need to bring you a meal. You scratch my back, I need to scratch your back. But that is not the life of discipleship. The life of discipleship is this ongoing battle, not just to believe, 
but because we don't believe there's all of these emotions that come along and feelings inside of us. And we need to continually reorient our hearts and our minds back to the kingdom of God. We need to reorient our minds and our hearts back to the true story of the world. The true story of the world tells you that if you don't have enough money to pay your bills, God still loves you and your life still has meaning and you're still called to live as a family of servant missionaries. The life of discipleship is to see that in our darkness, in our despair, it is, a, that is normal to live and to feel that as a human. But it is then to be aware of that, to repent and to run. And so I just want to encourage us that if you're not where you want to be, that's okay. You know where you are? Right where God wants you to be right now. Now, do we want to grow? Do we want to keep pleasing God? Yes, but those are very different realities. To be discouraged because you're not who you think you should be versus I want to be more pleasing to God. Those are different ways of viewing your discipleship. And one of the ways that we need to continually reorient our hearts and our lives back to the kingdom of God is found in this miracle. And it's again in verses 32 and 33, when Jesus says, I have compassion for these people. They've been with me three days. I want to feed them. And the disciples say this question, where are we going to get all this bread? What I want to highlight for you this morning is that in this miracle, the disciples display a mindset of scarcity. A mindset of scarcity. Not a mindset of abundance, but a mindset that there is not enough. The scarcity mindset is the belief that what we need now or in the future is going to be unavailable. It leads to a mindset that we need to protect or hoard all of our possessions and products and money to be prepared for the future, to make sure that we take care of ourselves and our families. We live with a scarcity mindset. Okay, and I just want to say this. Even when I say even I, that sounds so arrogant. I, want, I can say it this way, it'd be nice. All of us struggle with a scarcity mindset. All of us do. This is not like I'm on one side of the equation or the other. It's like there are areas and pockets, maybe more, than, more in some than others, that we have an experience and a mindset of scarcity. We don't believe the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's not a, I mean, that's like King James. It's not saying you don't want to have needs or asking for things. It means lack. I am not going to lack anything. That is an abundant mindset. And you know who that prayer is actually all about? Not you, but who's the whole point of the Bible? Jesus. He's the one who is calling out to his shepherd, the father, saying, I will not lack anything. And Jesus didn't even have a house. He didn't have a place to lay his head. And he's saying, I'm not going to lack anything. The father is going to take care of me. 
This is the life of abundance, the abundant mindset. And yet we live as, I am my shepherd, so I will take care of myself. How do you know if you have a scarcity mindset? Here are just five ways that I would give to you that demonstrate ways in which we live and possess a mindset of scarcity. You hoard your time, possessions, and money. Okay, now, can we all just take a deep breath for a second? Just because you like to keep things doesn't necessarily mean your scarcity. It just probably means it. I know you're all going to be like, that's not me, but I save stuff. Okay, great. I'll let you and the Spirit talk about it. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying one of the main ways you know you live in a scarcity mindset is you are always like, oh, I can't get rid of that. Oh, we got to keep that. We got to keep this. We, oh, I need to keep that. Ten- no, give me that $5 back. You hold on to everything so tightly. You're hesitant to give it away because you might need it again in the future. How well is that iPod doing for you? I'm so glad you kept it. Like the VC, my kids don't even know a VC. I mean, they do it, but they don't. What does it mean? Like we hold on to stuff because it's like, this is me. This is my life and I can't lose my life. And Paul says, "Um, time out, kids. Jesus is my life. Your life is not consisting in possessions and what you do and where you go. Your life consists of your life in Jesus. That's your life. And when your life is Jesus, you live with a mindset of abundance. And again, there's stewardship and there's wisdom. But when Jesus is your life, you are free to throw things away, to give it to other people. And guess what? If you need it again in the future... I promise you, if you really need it, God's going to give it back to you somehow. He really will. Maybe not the exact same bed that you got rid of, but he'll give you a bed that you need in the future again. And you know what? It might even be a better bed. But no, we kept our bed and paid $2 million to have a storage unit just because we can't get rid of anything. And now we have a bed from 1977 that we love, but we got it. You hoard your time. You don't want to give away your time. It's so precious, especially in our culture. It's a mindset that there's not enough money. There's not enough time. There's not enough possessions. A scarcity mindset number two is you're constantly blaming others for the situation you're in. Individuals with this scarcity mindset tend to blame external factors and other people for their struggles. Instead of taking responsibility for their own choices and their own actions, they always see themselves as victims. Do you believe or do you see in yourself the victim mentality? You have a scarcity mindset. You don't live with the abundance that Jesus is giving you everything and that you're never a victim. He's the only victim. Number three, when you live with a scarcity mindset, you seek to control and dictate those around you. A scarcity mindset requires that you control others because only in your control can you achieve your outcomes. You become self-reliant, believing you can only depend on yourselves to get done what needs to get done. Any of you live like that? Like, all right, I'm done asking people. 
because they just can't do it right. So I'm going to just do it myself. And you run off with a huff, with the joy of the Lord, filling your spirit, so happy that these other people are idiots and can't do it the way you do it. But that's the reality. It's like you live with a scarcity mindset that you are the only one who can get things done. And it's ironic that when you live this way, great, you got stuff done, but you are so lonely and so isolated from people. You just burn bridges. All in the name of making sure the counter was cleaned off the right way. And you find it, this is, this is also a little inward, like, scary for me, too. It's like, you find it hard to trust others because you're always suspicious of their motives. Why are they doing that? Who did that? I bet they did that because they did that last time. I know those people. They're like that. It's a scarcity mindset. Scarcity mindset number four is you freak out about the future. You're always, future, or you're always nervous about the future. You're always pessimistic about the future. You always predict the future negatively. I know that in a week, in a month, or six years, this is what's going to happen. I know it. I'm just like, no, you don't. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But you live in this negative, pessimistic reality of the future. Number five, you overschedule. Overcommit. There's not enough hours in the day. And so you say yes to everything. You need to get everything done. You squeeze in as much as possible. There's more things to experience. There's more things that got to get done. And in all of this, you're displaying what the disciples displayed. Where are we going to get bread? You're displaying the doubt, the disbelief that the true shepherd is walking right alongside of you and is going to abundantly give you everything you could ask beyond you could even imagine. Abundance is the settled belief that God is taking care of you and he will continue to take care of you. John Piper speaks of this as what he calls future grace. It's like we often look at the past and see God taking care of us and giving us grace and kindness, but we forget about it in the future. And the future grace, the future abundance is just as secure as it has been in the past. Where's the bread? It was there in the 5,000, it's going to be here in the 4,000, and it's going to be here in the new creation when Jesus feeds us at his table. That bread is past, present, and future. It is there wholeheartedly all the time. We don't have to live with a mindset that there's not enough, that God is not going to take care of me. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to live my own way. I'm not going to trust anyone. I'm going to do it myself. Like That is so antithetical to the kingdom of God that you live in a way that says God is not enough. God is not going to let you go. He's not going to forget that you exist. He will meet you. The annoying part of God is he's always right there, but he only makes himself known at the very, seemingly at the very last moment right before we're ready to like do something crazy. 
have a little exercise I want us to do. I don't know if you can read that or not, but you can turn to Luke chapter 12 and verse 22 in your Bible, and uh, we're going to do something really strange. I want you to get in groups and read Luke 12, 22 through the following thing. It's down to verse 27. And as you're reading this passage together, I'm going to read it out loud once for us in just a moment. But as you're reading through this passage, I want you to ask yourself, what is the scarcity mindset that Jesus is talking about in this passage? And what is an abundant mindset? So listen. And then you can break up into groups. And if you're new with us, don't freak out. We're nice. We'll be, we'll be kind. People will come alongside of you and um, introduce themselves and be hospitable. But I want us to talk together about what an abundant mindset and a scarcity mindset is according to this passage. Jesus says in Luke 12, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothes. So, consider the ravens. <laughs> when was the last time you considered a bird? So, good. Like, I did it this week, because I was reading this passage, and I'm sitting in a stoplight, and these two little birds are walking by on a piece of grass, and I went, I need to look at those for a minute. And they got something in their beak, running, and then he just flew off. And I went, well, I considered the bird. <laughs> but Jesus says, actually consider them. This is not how I considered it. They don't sow. They don't reap. They don't have a pantry filled with food. They don't have a barn. Yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? I don't know if you, I love like, this is how my mind works. I don't know if you can see that. There's like two main commands on the far left, two considerations, and then like main points Jesus wants you to get. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you can't do this little worry, this little very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They don't labor, they don't spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. That is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is sown into the fire. How much will he clothe you, you of little faith? And don't set your heart on what you'll eat or drink. Don't worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Find a group of people and just look through that passage together and pull out some ways that Jesus addresses a scarcity mindset versus a mindset of abundance. So I'll just give you about three to five minutes to break up into some groups and discuss that.
I give you another minute. Okay, as we come back, uh, anyone want to just share ways you see Jesus speaking of scarcity or a mindset of abundance in that passage? How did you see Jesus present a scarcity or an abundance mindset from that passage? like in your own words. Say again. You have it all when you have Christ. The abundance mindset produces freedom and peace. Ted. Uh, like a scarcity mindset, it's like I need more and more. How dare he? Right? Yeah, that's great. That's good. One of the things that I take away from this passage is the mindset of scarcity. What are you prioritizing in your life? Correct. A mindset of abundance, you set your heart where? the kingdom of God. Like, I don't want to, like, Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat. We said this to our leaders yesterday, that Paul says in Ephesians 4 that people should stop stealing and go get a job. 
And we would be like, yes, stop stealing, go get a job, get your own house, and pay your own bills. But you know why Paul says they should get a job? So they can meet the needs of others. That's crazy. That's ridiculous. Go get a job so you can actually meet the needs of other people. That is a kingdom mindset of abundance. If you look at the very next verses after these, the mindset of abundance is sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Give away your stuff. Like the reality is, is that the difference, we could make all these, you know, as I did, and there's even more out there of like what a scarcity mindset looks like. The ultimate thing for me is where is your priorities and what are you focusing on? And what I want you to know is that when we are in our scarcity moments, because we have them, I want you to know, number one, that Jesus has compassion for you in your scarcity moment. Not just in your moments of abundance, but even in your moments of scarcity, Jesus has compassion for you. So he says in verse 32 and 33 that he looks out at all the crowds and he has deep compassion upon them. And it's not just like God is like, oh, I care for you. I'm so glad that, you know, that you're my child. But in that compassion, he's actually going to meet you. I want you to think of this setting, if you know the Old Testament story, in a different way. It says in verse 33 that they're in a remote place. The Greek word is actually wilderness. And... We'll get in, we can talk later about why they interpret it as remote place. But read it as wilderness. Here are the children of Israel out in the wilderness, starving without any food. Any ever thought of that story before? And now comes a Moses figure, a truer and better Moses, who is not just going to provide manna, but he's going to actually provide true bread for his people. This is the compassion of Jesus for you. He acts as the true and better Moses, who is not just going to leave you in the wilderness, but he's going to meet you in the wilderness to bring you to his new creational lands. Being in the wilderness sucks. It's hard. It's annoying. There's annoying people, annoying bills, annoying jobs, annoying kids, annoying houses, annoying cars, annoying, like everything is like just filled with struggle in the wilderness. But in the wilderness, a truer and better Moses is coming and feeding you and leading you to that new world. So put your minds on things above. Put your mind on the things that God thinks about. Think about that new creational world and live with a mindset of abundance because in this year that we live, when there is going to be a, who knows, but probably a very crazy, traumatic time around November, life is going to get real interesting. Are you going to live with a scarcity mindset or a mindset of abundance? That actually, it doesn't matter who's the president. 
That doesn't change our role. That doesn't change our trust and belief in what God has called us to do. What a way to be witnesses together by just living in an abundance mindset. Jesus, help us. Help us. We get so wrapped up in a scarcity mindset as we put so much emphasis on food and clothing. But help us this week just look at the creation you've made. It's filled with abundance. The trees, the birds, the plants, the flowers, you take care of all of them. You're the most generous, giving God there is. And so in our path of discipleship, may we continue to realize that we have abundance in Jesus. And may we continue to turn and look to him, help each other to look to him, to remind us that we have abundance because the Lord is my shepherd and we will not lack anything. So bless us as we, in a few moments, leave, but leave together to display the kingdom of God in a mindset of abundance to people who continue to live only in scarcity. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org. 